Hi, you are listening to the Higher Intelligence Podcast presented by My Working Soul. My name is Corrine and I'm your host and I am so excited to welcome you today to contemplate all things work in a changing world. On this show, we address the human factor, covering topics that address a new idea of human resources management and hiring. In an era of remote global work, the implications of communication and space at work have never been more significant, especially from the lens of talent acquisition. It's the beginning of a working relationship between employer and employee. If you've ever thought about full cycle talent acquisition, if you're thinking about employer brand and corporate storytelling, then you know something about the cyclical nature of reputation and why finding the right people at the right time and at the right place is so important to a business. There is something quintessentially human about the magic of talent acquisition, and it underscores something I personally feel very passionate about. The critical aspects of embracing coaching, community, and continuity for collective team success. For anyone that identifies as a human resources nerd, this episode is dedicated to you. Stay tuned for the end where we'll share a piece of higher intelligence, our success takeaways for applying the discussion in an innovative HR and people context. Ferris Rosen is the founder of Enlighten Group, a talent acquisition, employee development, and organizational development consultancy group with expertise in global talent, cross-cultural teams, and diversity hiring through the lens of people relations, company culture, and transformational leadership. Her expertise as a certified SHRM Senior Human Resources Leader and Talent Acquisition Consultant is complemented by her degrees in Communication, Global Business Leadership, and Liberal Arts. Our conversation opens with a human factor in human resources, exploring the implications of communication and space in a hiring process and the importance of having kind intention, especially when you're working with humans. Together, we discuss the consequences of content, language, and perception when working with people, tapping into core public relations and communication principles to uncover the impact of thoughtful communication and how that transforms the human experience as a candidate, employee, or end user. Ferris is someone that I personally consider a professional mentor. She has taught me so much about professional delivery in the talent acquisition function and her respect for measured communication is a rare gift that I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to witness. Something that Ferris executes with remarkable grace is how to engage and build successful global teams across the world. Her process for solving problems and next leveling HR systems is truly enlightening. Hello, and welcome to the Higher Intelligence Podcast. My name is Kareen, and I'm your host. And today we are so excited to be speaking with the founder of Enlightened Creative Group. Her name is Ferris Rosen. Ferris, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you. I want to preface our conversation by saying that Ferris is someone that I deeply admire. I definitely consider her a mentor, and I also consider her a friend. And I'm going to be so tempted today to go in 18 different directions because she is absolutely one of the most thoughtful uh, human beings I have ever met, just generally speaking, but also in her realm of expertise, talent acquisition, and human resources. And that's alluding to a bit of what we'll be discussing today. So just to get started, Ferris, can you tell us more about Enlightened Creative Group and how you got started? Sure. Well, so I've been doing a Latin creative group for quite a few years now. 
for a bit, I did go in-house for a client. That was an exciting adventure for about three or four years. And now I'm back at it. I'm a consultant. I like to help clients to figure out problems, strategize on how to next level their recruitment and HR systems. And I just really find joy in solving problems. Absolutely. And one of the things that I really connected with when we first met was the name of your company, Enlightened Creative Group. Why did you decide to name your company Enlightened Creative Group? You know, it was just a word that makes you feel lighter, like there's hope. (laughs) So that really resonated with me. And then the creative aspect is something I vacillated with, you know, taking out of the name, actually, because a lot of people look to me and they think, oh, she can only work on creative roles, right? And so it's two part. One is I love that it embodies like the creative solutions, thinking outside of the box. Sometimes it leads people in a different direction, thinking about what creative means, right? That is so relevant and insightful. And I'm glad you brought that up because right now, just to bring up more of a topical matter at hand, so to speak, we're currently all of us undergoing this transformation in work with the advent of artificial intelligence. And it's intriguing to see a lot of the first battles be waged in Hollywood and California, where both creative groups like the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Association going on strike for for creative rights. And it's interesting because right there, there's an intersection between what is thought of as creative and how it's being, in some people's view, threatened in the the work landscape today. And it's just interesting because to me, creative means, as you've alluded to, it means thoughtful, strategic. And that draws us to another conversation, which is an outgrowth of talent acquisition, which is employer brand. So when you think about your expertise as a creative thinker who does have experience in the creative sphere, but it's so much more than that. When you're thinking about employer brand and how that has emerged alongside of talent, do you have any insights in terms of how that emerged and and where it's going? As far as the AI goes, you know, the hope is that it helps to overcome bias and saves time and energy and cuts down on some of that work that we all, you know, dread clicking through resumes. (laughs) However, I think one of the things is, you know, ownership, who owns this, who creates it, who are the people that are creating the space to make it sure that it doesn't have bias. And as we've talked about before, you know, human bias is something that we all have. It's just innately human. While the hope for AI is to to go in this wonderful direction, it's really at the people who are creating the AI. So I vacillate between Do I want to jump in there and help create and be a voice and also help elevate other voices as well so that it's a very diverse um, set of thinking that goes into how we program technology and use AI? Or do I want to run away and build a cabin in the woods and just eat peaches all day? (laughs) You know, (laughs) so that's kind of the AI, you know, landscape in my mind anyways. To, to comment briefly on what you said about artificial intelligence and incorporating a diverse understanding of what it means to be creative, that's highlighting exactly what I personally admire in your process and how you work is the way in which we're always thinking outside of the box, regardless of whatever new technologies emerge alongside of us that change the way that we work, if we retain that creative mentality of let's innovate. There's a host of possibilities. So thank you. This is one of the reasons I I adore you. And then bridging into employer brand, because that's also a lot of people see employer brand as an outgrowth of marketing. There's some people that see it as an outgrowth of talent acquisition or of HR. What's your opinion on that? People think of brand as like a veneer that you can put on a company. It's like the old MySpace skin. You could pick a pretty picture and put it there and it's whatever you want to make it, right? But really what the brand is, is what the customers feel about it. It's what the people who work there feel about it. It's about, you know, what's in the media about the company. And some of those things can't be controlled by a story that comes from corporate. So it's this like organic thing that grows. And if you don't really pay attention to the to the core of how you build your brand, of how you treat your customers, of how you interact in the world and take care of the planet, then your brand is not going to have a good image. You can't, you know, do a bunch of PR to fix it. You can put a veneer on it. Some people will believe it. Some people won't. 
But I think that in talent acquisition, this is really important in, in how you treat your employees because a lot of executives, leaders and organizations have a really high viewpoint of what they want the company to be. They tell the story of what the company is. And then the people who are on the ground, managers and below are living a different experience. And the stories they tell each other about the culture and, and the brand is different. They don't, they don't usually come together. So it's this thing of you can't really tell people what it is. It is what it is. You know, it's the culture, the brand, it's what's been created. That's kind of a vague statement, but it's the anthropological standpoint of saying, you know, let's analyze it and let's see what it is instead of saying what it is, so to speak. Yes. Yes. And uh, for, for us, both of us being card-carrying recruiters <laughs> in terms of people who are at the forefront of hiring, it's a different thing when you're talking to someone about leaving their their livelihood for another place versus creating a marketing campaign. The implications and the consequences are different. And you and I both are unique and you don't see this often, people who have both this skill and talent acquisition where it's a science combined with human resources. And the reason why that's significant, I mean, I have my own opinion on that, but why do you think it's significant in your identity as someone who's a hiring leader? Why is it significant that you understand marketing, you understand public relations, you understand talent acquisition as a science, and then also there's this human resources part of it, which which might be undergoing a rebrand <laughs> in the term itself. Like, how do you reconcile those identities and how does it inform the way that you hire? Well, I have this core belief that all leaders should have this kind of well-rounded ownership of everything within the organization because everything connects to one another. So, you know, you think about someone in finance, you really want them to be an HR leader as well, because the money that you're spending and where it's going, they have to be in line with the culture of HR in order for things to be cohesive instead of saying, well, it's a bottom line and not a person, it's a number, you know, so everybody kind of has to transform in this employee first or employee centric phase we're going into the next decade or so. I'm hopeful that that's where everyone's going. You know, from the place where I've been, I've always thought it's responsible to say, how does what I do affect everyone else? How does this hire come into the company? And what are this, what are the, you know, waves that it makes? Every change that you make, every hire that you make changes the company in, in many different ways and ways that you will not know sometimes. And so it's a very thoughtful process where you think, well, how can this person help grow the company or how, how are they also going to be happy here? And, you know, how will it affect all of these different departments? And so I always think that I have this idea that you should always hire people who are nice. <laughs> so, you know, at the very core of it, capable and nice, right? So they come into the organization and they have the ability to not change it in a different direction. And one person can change a whole team, can change a whole group of employees. That's kind of a simple explanation for how I, I look at how things connect, but there's much more complex ideas about how it affects finances and marketing and, and all of those different ways. Yes. And again, I'm so tempted to go into 18 different directions because I know you well personally. And there's so much underneath the surface. It's an iceberg really in terms of how much complexity and thoughtfulness you in particular take when we're thinking about the human factor is what I like to call it. And to give people like a bit of a, a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, in terms of what you prize on an operational level in your work, when I've had the privilege to learn from you. One of the, the biggest takeaways for me is the way in which you creatively embed content in the process. It's been a huge learning for me in terms of just learning from you, how language can affect so much of how human beings perceive one another. And I'm curious to know just from you how that philosophy developed, because it's something I've noticed that you do, and it's something I respect so deeply, the way in which you embed communication, not just in, in the debrief process with, with the hiring team, but also how you infuse communication as a value in the actual process of it all and with candidates. And I, I personally hadn't ever seen it. I hadn't ever seen someone recruit that way. So if you could just mm -hmm. share a little bit more about how you came up with that process and why, why it's important and why we continue it. 
Yeah. I mean, I think for me, communication has been a struggle, which is why I've had to work so hard at it and focus on it and really making sure that, you know, all of the ideas and the intuitions that you have are expressed in a way that are cohesive and that other people understand. So that process for me didn't come easily, so to speak. And so I think what I like to look at is how information is received, how, what, if I say this, what are the different ways that someone might interpret it, right? And so my head kind of goes through the whole thing of, well, they can take it to this extreme or that extreme or somewhere in the middle. And then honing the language in to say, well, if this word might trigger a feeling, let's take it out. Let's find a different word. And so it's really based upon my own bias. You know, I ask for other opinions, but I'm thinking in the past, what have people reacted to? If I said things this way, then someone came back and they were angry you know, giving feedback to candidates, right? I think it's something that's really important. And it's something that recruiters don't want to do because honestly, they're afraid they're going to get yelled at. They're probably afraid of like legal issues if they say something to someone and it seems discriminatory or, you know, not good assessment of their their skills. And so I think a lot of times recruiters tend to be like, I don't really want to really engage with someone who I'm saying no to. But I think it's important to, even if that person's going to get upset, because sometimes you just can't help it. Sometimes someone's in a bad mood. They applied to 100 jobs and there was a bunch of jerks that told them no in a really not nice way. And then you come along and you're gracious and you say to them, hey, listen, this is not a good fit because you don't have this experience or this is something that's missing on your, your resume or in your experience. And then they're upset with you, but it's really because you have opened yourself up and they finally have someone to speak to that they're going to give you kind of like, okay, I have all this baggage. I've been dealing with all of this. But so you have to kind of be vulnerable and say, you know, I'm going to take the good and the bad. I'm going to do my best to package the communication, but I'm not going to be afraid if I do everything legally and I do everything in the kindest way and I have the best intentions, I might slip up a little bit, but still that intention behind it is there and the intention to connect and be kind to people and leave a soft global footprint, I think is the basis of communication. And then you're never perfect, right? You're just trying to do your best. Yes. And that right there is is a highlight of how Ferris, I don't know how she does it. I, I, <laughs> I emulate her as best I can, but she exists at that intersection of marketing, that creative way of thinking but also very strategic in terms of process. There's just a world of questions I could ask about that, but I think this will be really intriguing because among our listeners, we also have a lot of HR people, leaders, as well as recruiters listening. And I, I like to really proudly say I'm a recruiter forever, but I'm also in HR. And it, it's interesting in my experience, I've noticed different connotations when I walk in a room and I say, I'm a founder versus when I say I'm a recruiter or when I say I, I work in HR. What, what has been your experience managing and mitigating those differential identities? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for the most part, people think of recruiters as the fun part, right? Where you get to bring people into the company, you're offering them money and benefits, and it's always <laughs> usually just really a wonderful party to be a part of. And then on the HR side, sometimes there can be a lot of problems. There's a lot of, you know, people coming with different concerns. And I think also the discretion that's there too, right? Where you're feeling protective on, from a legal standpoint, and you want to make sure that you're meeting everyone's needs. And there's a lot of pressure on the HR side for that aspect of it. So I think people view that differently within an organization, right? They might not come to the recruiter with a concern about something that happens after they start because they're thinking, well, that was segmented. That was their job to bring me in. Now I need to connect with the HR department and have them kind of solve any issues I might have here. I think it's definitely a very different relationship that you have with employees when you have the different titles. Absolutely. And just by choosing to use the word titles, that alludes to HR is changing. I, I don't think that's a controversial mm -hmm. statement for anyone. It's it's intriguing. You and I both understand this feeling, right, of being an expert and being brought in on a limited basis, on a fractional basis for a very clear objective, especially yeah. from a hiring perspective. And it's kind of funny when I tell people, oh, I'm talent acquisition. Most of the lay population goes, huh? 
and, and then I go mm-hmm. recruiting and they, they start thinking in one direction, just like you said, the party. But when I introduce myself as human resources, they start to ask me questions like, oh, well, my job said this. It's like a totally different question set that I get asked. And what I think would be worthy for leaders and decision makers of companies to consider as we're shifting into a new era of work, it would be helpful to consider on a raw level, what type of skill is cultivated when you're in this position where you're holding two people's hands, right? And you do it in HR with employer and employee. With the talent side of the house, you're doing it with candidate and employer. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, how do you see that, that that handholding differently in terms of like, where are the stakes raised? What are the stakes and how are they different when it's HR versus talent acquisition? Right. Well, in talent acquisition, you haven't made a commitment to anyone yet on the candidate side. So I think it's a lot easier protecting the company, making sure that you're bringing in the right people. And then you're interacting with the candidates and there's no commitment made to them. So it makes it a lot easier in the HR side. You have a commitment. You have a full commitment to both, right? You're in in this relationship with both of them. You have two spouses, (laughs) so to speak, and you're trying to balance it. And I think a lot of people tend to lean more towards HR because they get concerned about legalities. They get concerned about executive leadership and the things they want them to do. And unfortunately, I don't think this is like this at every organization, but I think that the employees tend to be advocated for a little bit less than those other concerns and aspects. You know, I think I I mentioned this to you before, but there was a gentleman on LinkedIn who was posting about the layoffs. He was laid off from an organization. He was talking about Microsoft about 10 or 15 years ago. There was a recession and they were big layoffs. Instead of handpicking which, strategically handpicking which people to have exit the organization, they offered everyone an exit package. And they said, if you'd like to go, here's the exit package. And it gave the employees a lot of power and control and autonomy. And I think a better feeling towards the organization if they left. They thought I always wanted to go live in Europe for a year or do something amazing or be an artist or write a book. And they got to choose it for themselves versus the companies, the layoffs that have happened recently have been more okay, who are the people that maybe don't produce as much or are maybe aging out and don't have the information of the new graduates that are going to take us into this next decade of work, the knowledge that they need to have. There's different ways to think about it. What if they said, instead of doing this, let's look at who we could retrain to, right? And there was probably some of that happening, but there was a very clear process of picking which people left the organizations. And so I think that you know, kind of ties back to the employee-centric decision-making. Are we doing only what's best for the company, for the bottom line, for the shareholders always? Is that always what we default to? Or are we going to start transitioning into a space where we have equality in that and we get to give everybody decision-making in this process, right? Yes. And I'm, I'm so appreciative of you going there in this conversation, Ferris, because it highlights something that I'm going to pinpoint recruiters for. Recruiters ask questions, and this is ultimately why talent acquisition needs to be embedded internally as a core business function. I believe that it's the most important facet of the HR suite as we know it, and that's because we're entering a period of dynamic change where the connection making is ultimately what's important, whether someone's a candidate or an employee, and also thinking through the ideas of being connected to the business marketplace. And oftentimes, I I notice this, there's an entrepreneurial aspect of HR, and there's an entrepreneurial aspect of recruiting because they lend themselves well to being outsourced resources. And there's a lot of different pros and cons to why that is. But there are differences. And personally, I think that HR as an industry and profession has been underserved in the sense that it's an amalgam of different expertise, whether it's payroll, which which is very different than benefits administration. And I love the way you summed it up earlier as a callback to talking about how every single team member needs to see themselves as HR. That beautifully leads to, okay, Ferris, how do we do that from a business perspective, taking into account the economy, taking into account market factors, and how do we do that on 
on an operational level in terms of like, okay, I'm company ABC. How do, how do I get my people to be HR? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a big transformation for managers who aren't used to having to carry the burden of making HR-like decisions that are going to their HR professionals very quickly, a lot of times for advice. There is some objectivity that comes with external help from recruiting or HR. So if you have an organization that's coming in and helping you shine a light on things a little bit differently, and then they have no skin in the game, really. So if you have a consultant coming in, they're not thinking, well, if I make this decision, is this the end of my career here? If I suggest this or that, will I not get promoted? You know, there's a lot of things that get lost in internal roles. Not to say that they aren't important, because I think you can do a lot different things in internal roles than you can as an external consultant. And it's also dependent upon how close you can get in your relationship with the client, if they're going to really let you in or if they're going to kind of hold you at bay and just give you the wreck or give you the project to do, so to speak. But, you know, circling all of that into how do we transform everyone to kind of be on this team, right? So that everyone's having the ownership of talent acquisition, of HR. And I think it's really making sure that training is based on your mission and values and that it really goes into depth into laws. What can we say and can't we say in interviews? Because this is a big thing that happens. A lot of people are interviewing who don't know that they're breaking the law by asking certain questions. So that's really important. And then what are the soft skills around this, right? How do we analyze someone's behavior and how do we also separate our bias from this? So if someone says to me in an interview, I don't have a car, I'm going to take the bus to work, right? And a manager hears this, the first thing they're going to hear is, okay, we live in LA, so it's unreliable bus schedules. This person lives across town. They may not be able to get here on time every day, especially if it's shift-based work, they're going to start getting panicked about this. And then what will happen is they might start looking for other things in the interview that don't line up, right? So they start to build a picture for this candidate that's like, they're not a good fit. So what you have to do is learn how to unpack all of this. So we as recruiters, we sit down after the interview and we ask ourselves questions, right? We think, did I, was I fair to this candidate? What were the things that I liked and didn't like about them? Oh, I like them because they look like my cousin. And you start to think about these things and you go, okay, well, that's not relevant. You just shelf it, right? So this is a really easy way to kind of help managers to understand how to do talent acquisition. And then from the HR side as well, the bias is so important. It's like, am I making a decision here because I want to hold this person back because I don't like them? Or is it actually because they are not doing good work and they need more help? You know, so the question asking the self, the constant saying, why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this is the most important aspect. And you can apply this to any kind of modality of business, right? What decision-making am I going through? Let me apply this process to it and make sure I'm not making some like guttural decision that makes no sense here. I really want to think through it. And you could do this fast. Once you learn it, it's not like you're going to take days and you have to mull over it. You can go through the process pretty quickly. You can get to the end of it and you can feel really secure about your decision-making once you've gone through this this process, so to speak. Yes. And I, I think the tragedy is that everything that you're saying is not codified in a textbook so that the lane of recruiters and HR professionals, there's a lack of standardization. That much is true across any profession. And yet it's it's really why it's so important for someone like you to have a platform and be heard because it's a very thoughtful way of working with people. And there's ways to reduce down the term human resources, recruitment, and it all comes down to working with people. And in a Mm -hmm. digital age where we are surrounded by robots, it's so important to have as a vetted strategic resource in your business, someone who's there has the value of experience. Because one thing that I can say as someone who has so much passion hiring and working with human beings there's certain things that you just can't learn until you experience them and until you see them enough times. And you can have all of the scientific research in the world to back up a conclusion. 
And sometimes that's how some businesses think and it's, and it's a good thing and they should think that way. But there's virtue in someone coming in to ask really strategic questions, which is definitely something that Ferris excels in. And also thinking in a creative way about how all of these matters intersect. Because when you're on that call with a candidate, that candidate might be your customer the next day, or it might be our mm -hmm. boss. So thinking in that direction is is so important. And to be honest, I think that a lot, unfortunately, I think a lot of human resources teams are underserved by not having this external resource to help them think through that plastic bubble that they're in, in terms of what are, what are my organizational biases? Because the way that HR, internal HR is structured as a position right now, it's, I venture to say, impossible to be able to be holding everyone's hand and also be making sometimes, quite honestly, ruthless decisions about what's best for the business. So thank mm -hmm. you, Ferris. That's wonderful. And the next thing I want to ask you, we are in California and having HR experience in this state is so prized for a reason. There's a lot of intricacies in, in the way that companies run here in this state. And I'd love to ask you just about what your experience is practicing HR in a complex state like California. And also if you have thoughts on whether or not there's a discrimination against California candidates, that's kind of a hot topic that some people have talked about on LinkedIn, and whether or not that has anything to do or if it's connected with this parent exodus, if you ask certain people, of people leaving the state of California, primarily it seems for socioeconomic reasons. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Well, I think there definitely are a lot of individuals that have left. I think are there's still people coming to California, but the numbers of um, people coming in are less than in years past. I think it's very expensive to live here right now. And um, the unemployment rate is slightly higher in California than it is across the country. It's about 1% higher. So there may be not as many jobs available for people coming into the state. And I think we've seen a lot of companies also leave for you know taxes, business benefits. There's a lot of other states that are offering tax discounts for them to relocate. So we're seeing some companies leave, some candidates leave. And so you'd think there'd be maybe just the same amount of opportunities. The other part is that a lot of jobs have remote. So if you're a California organization or if you're out of state and you have a remote role, you can hire anywhere. From a strategic standpoint, when you're going to have to pay a lot of taxes and follow different laws and have different benefits in California than you would say in another state, you may not want to hire in California. I know anecdotally a couple of recruiters that work externally have shared with me that clients have asked to stay away from California. And so, you know, I think it's a strategic decision more than discriminatory, I would say, but it does certainly feel like not great <laughs> if you're a California candidate and you're really looking for a job and you're kind of, you know, Already in Los Angeles, you're a little fish in a big pond, and all of a sudden, these remote roles are open to the whole of the U.S., and now you're just a teeny tiny fish in a big pond, and maybe you're applying to hundreds of jobs every month, and you're just not getting bites in California. I know that a lot of people are unemployed here, especially in the human resources sector. Yes, absolutely. And it, there's an irony in that because the type of HR experience that you get when you are in California, I would say arguably is the most robust because laws are always changing here. Mm -hmm. And there was a saying about how California leads the nation because we tend to be a state that that looks forward, um, at, le at least traditionally speaking in the last 20 years. So just from a skills perspective and and a knowledge perspective, I think there's so much value in someone who understands California in the way that we do. But I also mitigate that with being someone who works with employers in the state of California and seeing the the hiccups that can happen just from not reading a, a particular legislation the right way at the right point of time. So again, it's another it's another example of trying to hold different competing concerns in, in the same hand at the same time. And it's interesting because you alluded to another core facet of your expertise, which is global hiring and global human resources. And we both understand intimately the nature of 
remote work, or at least I think I do, and then it flips on its head. But how would you say, how does culture play into hiring, whether that's on an operations level, because most of the time those hiring arrangements are remote working relationships. Mm -hmm. And also, do you, do you see that as the future of work in terms of why hire an expensive person in California, for instance, when you can find just as high quality of talent in the Philippines or Argentina or even, you know, Florida, if we're thinking U.S. based? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of global recruitment, I think, in over 13 countries now. So, you know, I've learned a lot. One of the things I really like to do is to dive into the culture, the hiring culture. You know, of course, as a recruiter, you're looking to set up teams. You're going to say, where are the people? Are they on LinkedIn or another platform? So you're going to find the people first and then figure out what are the norms in, in the interview process? What are the norms that they're expecting here in order to engage them with the company? Also kind of identifying the differences between the U.S. and another country is really important. A lot of times I think people who are from the U.S. think this is the way it's done. We're a U.S.-based company, so we're going to do things in a Western way. And I think that's a disservice because really we want, I think we what we love about the world is how diverse everyone is and the different things they bring. And I think, especially being in California, how progressive we are, sometimes we can look at other cultures that are very patriarchal and we can think, well, they can't act that way. <laughs> and so this is a very difficult mindset to come into a conversation with someone who holds different values than you. And so it's this blend between, you know, okay, well, what are the progressive values that you embody? as a recruiter in HR, as a company, what's your mission and values? And then what are the differences in the culture that you're beginning to work in? Are you already in currently engaged in your employees and the people you're bringing to the company? What kind of benefits do they like? You know, maybe they don't want the same things that someone in the U.S. might want, or perhaps they don't like a structure that's loose. They prefer or excuse me, prefer to have a very tight, like, this is my schedule. This is how I work. You know, the flexible working structure in places like India, I know in the past, it's, it's very hard to maintain because the interpretation is very different. So you kind of get to learn, like, what, is, what are the needs of this population? How are they different? It's kind of like parenting, right? You have two children and they're completely different. And so you have to adjust your parenting style for one or the other a little bit differently and not to say that being in HR is like being a parent, but it's, it's, you know, that relationship that you're building and how you guide people through a process and help them, you know, in their growth as an employee. So there are some similarities between the two experiences. In your brilliant response, you highlighted once again how talent acquisition is not something that stops after you find the talent, after you sign an offer letter, all of these concerns and all of these topics in terms of how you engage with someone, it carries on for the rest of, of the relationship with the human being. And it's always that funny feeling, right? As when you're wearing the recruiter hat, when you do the the handoff and it feels like, like a, like a, like a custody handoff, almost to use the parent oh. <laughs> analogy of like, Hey, I've, I've nourished this, this human relationship with someone. And, and I've, I've spoken with their wife and I've heard their children in the background and now I'm, I'm giving you away. And, you know, that's why it's so important to consider holding on to that strategic relationship beyond scale-up mode. So many people think that talent acquisition and recruitment should be localized to, to that hiring phase in the life cycle of an organization. And really, there could be so much gain in retaining what we what used to be known as recruiters. I'm going to call them creative innovators now because we ask really strategic questions. We have a lot of information about the marketplace. It almost mm -hmm. makes me laugh some of the things people tell us I and mean, how much business value those observations carry. And again, just underscoring about how much we're already going through this transition where people are you know, to, to borrow a phrase, trying to kill human resources, and we're moving into this era of people operations. But I do think that what should be retained is, is thinking about the skills themselves and moving towards a no labels type of working framework where we're thinking about the skills that people have, whether they're capable, as you referenced earlier, do they have a good attitude? Do they want to do this? Does it align with what they want? And harmonizing that to affect collective success for everyone. Thank you, Ferris. You just 
inspire me with every response. And I want to stay on the, the parenting analogy because you're very good at it, first of all. And one of the things I remember when we first met, we were talking about cats. And this is probably nothing to do with work, but one of the things I've always remembered in our conversation that day is you were talking to me about the differences between male and female cats. And I think there's an analogy to work we can draw if we want to, but I just want people to know how, how much you also love cats and the knowledge you shared behaviorally in terms of being a cat parent with your boy cats and your girl cats? Are there any differences in, in those talent pools? Well, I mean, I have my experience with male and female cats. I'm not sure if it's across the board with all cats, but I, you know, what I've noticed with my girl cat is she makes herself small for, you know, other people to move out of the way. You know, the boy cat just barrels in and plops down and he takes his space. And so I think there is a definite difference between, you know, how we grow up in society and the things that we learn about women and men and how we should conduct ourselves. And I think men, for the most part, are told to be bold, take chances, you know, to go out there and, and go get it. And, and things are changing. Maybe not everywhere, but things are changing. And so for women, I think, especially for myself, I have found myself making myself really small so other people could be big. And I think that's a disservice. And so what happens is sometimes you have this space where you're like trying to graciously find how to expand or just to keep your space. And that can be a fun process <laughs> or not fun. But, you know, I think it's, it's all how we kind of view things, right? We allow this space to be, we make ourselves smaller and it's a choice we make, right? And there's a lot of resentment sometimes, but I think what, as I've, I've gotten older, I've started to realize that it's okay to keep that space. And it's okay for people to be a little bit like, hmm, she's taking space, right? That's okay. I think as women, we need to really graciously take our space and keep it. And there are times where it's the right thing to do to make space forever for someone else, but it needs to be everyone's doing it, not just a specific group of people. Hmm. Now I want to talk about Barbie with you. One of the things that I, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about the, the myth of Barbie and also the creation of Barbie as an enterprise, as a toy for, for girls. And one of the interesting things that I heard in a podcast yesterday was about how Barbie as a toy was appealing at that time in the 50s because you had little girls that wanted to play at being adult women. And I was realizing there's something else that has been said about Barbie that she's had like over 2000 careers and then they compare it to Ken. And I don't know his number, but I know he, he seemed to have less than Barbie. <laughs> and I'm just curious, like as someone who's a fellow American, you know, also grew up with this brand, it's quintessential for, for some of us in terms of what girlhood is and what it means to us. There's this connection with Barbie and her work too. And with, with yeah. both of us not watching the movie that's coming out, what are your thoughts on like Barbie and the example she, she sets for women and girls in terms of work and career and I guess not, not making yourself small at all, right? I mean, yeah, I had Barbies and we didn't have a ton of money. So I had to make my own Barbie clothes and Barbie hats and that sort of thing. I couldn't go out and buy all the accessories and I wanted everything. I wanted the Barbie house and the Barbie car and I had friends who, all, who had all of that stuff and I, and I didn't have it. So, I mean, I think for me, I haven't put a lot of thought into, you know, how Barbie has affected my viewpoint of what was accessible or available to me. I think I grew up with a mom who was very encouraging, who told me I could be, you know, whatever it was that I wanted to be. So that was very impactful. And maybe she had Barbies. <laughs> That's what did it for her. I don't know. I, I love that sentiment and, and I have a mother like that too. Now I want to know if we meet Barbie's mother in the film. Oh, I hope yeah. that they include that in there. We'll pray to uh, Greta Gerwig and maybe it will manifest. But the last question I wanted to ask you, Ferris, I like, honestly, there's 18 that I didn't get to ask because you're so infinitely fascinating. I went all over the place with you, but I would really, this has nothing to do with work. I uh, I remember another conversation we had as friends. One of the amazing, you know, recruitment things we worked on together has been working to find curators. And in that interaction, we had a conversation about the way in which different music streaming platforms curate our music for us. And you said to me that 
what they would curate for you was quite eclectic and it didn't really fit in any categories. So I've always, I've always seen you as someone who probably has the same music taste as me because I fit in the same category. And I would really love to know either a record or a song because sometimes you can't just pick one song, but there's like a record that really does it for you. But like, what is that record or song that takes you back to a place and like really tells a story of your life for you? Oh, that's so interesting. When I was growing up, we had a really long drive. We lived in the country. And so we had a 45 minute drive from like school to home. And uh, so my parents would play cassette tapes in the car. And there was this one cassette tape that they had of this artist. And he was uh, singing Spanish Pipe Train by John Prime. It was a cover at the Monterey Jazz Festival. So it was a live recording. And I just remember the song so much. And I told the joke earlier about moving to the country and eating peaches. And it's actually a line out of this song, throw away the TV. And it's a really cool song. So, you know, as an adult, about 10 years ago, I was thinking, I really, really would love to have a copy of that song. No one has the tape anymore. I have to find it. And so I did some internet search and I found the artist. His name is Steve Seskin. And I found someone that just had a treasure trove of records, of real records of this live recorded concert. And the original version by John Prine, I don't love it. <laughs> so I'm like, I have to have this one. <laughs> so I ordered it. And so I have, I have the record of this song and I'll have to send it to you because I love the song so much. And I think of a lot of my love for it is probably my childhood. So I don't know if it like transfers over <laughs> if I heard it now as an adult for the first time, it would be like, oh, I love it. But I think that's one of the songs that I, I really enjoy listening to. And it's kind of been like a theme for me in my life of being like, you know, having my foot in this world of business and then the other foot being like, you know, should I just run away and like, you know, no TV, no media. <laughs> and I don't wow. do that. Here I am yeah, in the real world. <laughs> well, I mean, that ladies and gentlemen is, is what you get with someone who is so infinitely insightful. That's a creative application of the skill set you use in talent acquisition in terms of finding and taking into account every ounce of potential bias that might inform that idea, but also knowing that we're grounded in reality. And I, I'm, I'm going to be totally sentimental and I can't help it because you're just so fascinating. And that's a beautiful memory you shared. I also feel such a connection to Peaches because I love T.S. Eliot. And my favorite poem is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And there's a line in that poem where he says, do I dare to eat a peach? And that is similar. It's a it's an echo of what you said, because that line encapsulates to me, do I dare to eat a peach? It's like, do I dare to speak? Should I be small right now? Or should I give other people space right now or all the time? And I think mm -hmm. that's something that men and women both have to contend with all the time in a changing reality. And I, I honor the work that you do in helping people discover that part of themselves at work, whether it's the start of the relationship when we're talking about workforce planning, strategic analysis of total rewards packages, how to engage with people, and also how to communicate with people, meeting them at the culture and the place in life where they're at, but also taking that beyond the offer letter, which is something that's so crucial and why people really need to have conversations beyond the offer letter to think about how we can sustain relationships for a long time and start to think yeah. about each other differently. So Ferris, thank you so much for all of your thank time you. today. It's been a wonderful conversation. And this is the first of many more, hopefully, appearances because we have yeah. so much to talk about. <laughs> thank, thank you, you so Ferris. Much. Let's talk about the higher intelligence success takeaways. In a hiring process, being mindful of the implications of communication and space. When scaling a team, expect things to happen. Even the most well-laid plans can sometimes go awry. And when that happens, when the organization is discussing the budget or retooling, the most important thing to do is to cultivate the intention to be kind. Remember the human factor and the dynamic at play for the candidate and for the hiring team. 
Process fatigue is something that can impact an organization's ability to capture the right people and the right people at the right time make a real difference. Sometimes it's all about the personalized touch, the emotional insight and intelligence to know when to insert humanity in the process. That's something that artificial intelligence will never be able to replace. As an organization from an HR perspective, the human factor means considering the impact of not finding, attracting, or retaining the right talent at the right time. The cost of an inappropriate hire cannot be understated. It can be the difference between success and failure of an entire business. Selecting the right person isn't something that can be attributed to what someone decides to put on their resume. It can't necessarily be determined by a recommendation or even prior experience. Someone can be amazing for 10 years of their career, and then it happens that an emotional event occurs. There we go, the human factor coming into play again and the results that the team needs never materializes. There's ways to plan around the human factor while still retaining humanity. It's essential to embed humanity at the start of the workforce planning process, engaging beyond face value and beyond the offer letter to ensure retention of an organization's greatest asset, their people. As an individual, particularly a candidate perspective, It's an understanding of the implications of your own candidate experience. Cultivating a sense of discernment when exploring an opportunity, finding ways to go beyond the gloss of marketing and face value to see the humanity in an organization, connecting with the mission, vision, values, and the people on the team. And remember, as a candidate and as a human being, you have a choice, and not all work is created equal. That's part of the joy in being human and deciding where to devote your energy and your time. This has been Higher Intelligence, a podcast presented by My Working Soul. Learn more about My Working Soul by visiting myworkingsoul.com. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the show on YouTube and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook.